So today is the end of a journey uh, in a few different ways. This is the last sermon of the series we have been doing on uh, the uh, journey with Jesus, kind of Luke volume 2. We, going through Luke, we've split it up into uh, three different sections. So we did Luke 1 through 9, and then 10 through 19 here is basically his, the journey section, where it says Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Uh, he's headed towards uh, Jerusalem, and uh, we planned it out so if everything went well, he'd be arriving at Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is today. And so this is the end of uh, Luke, volume 2, the journey to Jerusalem, uh, which Jesus in the, the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus is, is arriving there. We will come back. There will be a Luke, volume 3, eventually, and we're going to try and time that out so it ends uh, on Easter, hopefully next year. Uh, next week, we'll start a new series on union with Christ that I, I think will go about six uh, weeks. But here, we're uh, yeah, finishing this up. And so turn in your uh, Bible to Luke 19. We're going to start at verse 28, and we are going to uh, go to the end. So, and the first uh, point here, you write this down, if uh, you have your bulletin outline, is the Messiah King deserves worship, and you were made to worship. So the Messiah King, he, he deserves worship, and you were made to worship. Let's uh, look at the first part of this, uh, Luke 19, 28 through 35. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Okay, so Jesus, he's not at Jerusalem yet. He's getting ready. He needs to get some things ready for, for his, his entry. So he sent two disciples on ahead saying, Go into the village in front of you, okay, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So it was a young colt. It was also a donkey we, we know from other scripture. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, who were sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they're like, You uh, seem to be stealing our, uh, our colt here. Um, and they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Let's pause there for a second. So you see this going on. They're, they're getting this colt, and we're going to see part of this, uh, that it ends up fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah coming, uh, riding in in a, in a certain way. So Jesus, he's doing this for a few reasons. We're going to see he's fulfilling prophecy. It's also communicating something about his character, that uh, this, according to what Jesus is doing here in the prophecy, he's not uh, charging in on a, a giant majestic war horse, or with chariots, or in a big, um, you know, being being held up, or the royal elephants, or anything like that. It's, he's coming on a on a little young donkey here. Okay, we're going to see that. But here they have to go and get this. Ever wonder why you know so much detail about how to get this donkey? And it kind of seems kind of strange too. Like we don't know exactly what's going on. People have some different um, you know guesses. You know, whether this is someone that 
uh, you know, knew about this and what was going on, that there was an arrangement ahead of time, and that basically they're saying, you know, this is the time, the donkey. We had talked about this. You had agreed to let us use the donkey, and now it's time to use that. Maybe. Uh, there have been some that thought that the whole exchange, as far as saying the Lord has need of it, was some kind of code word that they had set up. But, you know, at the, or is this something where this, the owners had no idea about this, and the disciples, you know, it kind of looks like, are they just going to take this guy's donkey? Uh, but they tell him the Lord has need of it. And it doesn't say it in here, but I think the implication is the owners said, oh, the Lord has need of it. Take it. The Lord has need of it. He's asking for this. Yes, please. I, I would be glad to have you take this. Um, I, I didn't know what was going on before, but if... The Messiah needs this. There, there's no greater use I would have for what I for my property than for it to be used for the Lord to to use for Him to to enter. And I think there's an application that we can have just from this. If you think about that owner, and you know, maybe he did, had no idea what was coming with this, but they told him the Lord has need of it. So you can ask yourself. You know, what would you freely give if the Lord needed it? What would you be willing to give, you know, if, if you found out, either from Scripture, you're reading and it tells you, you should be doing this, or you should be giving this. Or if there's something that just God makes it just abundantly clear to you that you have a resource, whether it's property, financial, whether it's a time, your time, that is limited and valuable to you, abilities, if the Lord had need of it, if the Lord was asking, what do you have that you would be willing to give to him? That you would say, if the Lord needs this, there, there's no better use for this than for me to let this be used for the Lord and for his work. You know, maybe another way to think about this, what would you not be willing to give? Because I think we'd all want to say, anything you want, take that. But are there things that may be pretty tough? And maybe we really wouldn't or we'd really struggle. Or, Lord, I hope you don't ask me to give this. I hope you don't, um, you know, I, I have this saved up for this thing I want to give, and I hope you don't ask. I have this time that I, I want to use for my purposes. You know, whether it's a season of life that you thought you were going to do something else with, and, and he asks you to do something different. Or maybe it's just a little bit of time and you realize you, you have to have a conversation with someone. Maybe someone needs to hear the gospel. Maybe they need counseling. Maybe it's a Christian friend that needs your encouragement right now. You know, what are you willing to give? You know, it makes us think of Abraham. And the Lord asked him to give his, his son, to give Isaac and to sacrifice him. And he was, he was willing to do that. And we know from Hebrews, he expected, well, Lord's just going to raise him from the dead if I do this because he promised my inheritance is going to be passed on to him. But that was, that was a hard thing. The Lord didn't make him go through with it. But what would you? What about your kids? Do you have, a, do you have specific dreams for your kids? The American dream for them? Perfect you know, life and family and kids and all that. What if they start talking about going into missions? You know, maybe that's maybe it's not what you thought for them. Maybe that would be kind of dangerous. There's a lot of different things to think about. What would you be willing to give up 
and to give freely to the Lord if you realized without a shadow of a doubt that, that he needed it and that he was asking for it, that he had need of it. So going on, we see um, that also uh, this issue of the cult of a donkey, this fulfilled prophecy. In Zechariah 9.9, it said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout ahead, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So two things are going on here. And Jesus is being specific. He is uh, presenting himself, I think, in two ways. And the way that he comes in, the entrance of the Messiah King, it shows his humility and it shows truth. So we're seeing two different things. Uh, and even in the Zechariah quote, Zechariah 9.9, it says he's coming humbly. You know, he's, he's coming on a donkey. That was signifying something. That was part of God's plan to show his character. Part of the, the truth that it's signifying is also that he is, this is the Messiah. He is signaling, I am who Scripture has been pointing ahead to all of these years. He's coming in humility and he's coming in truth. And we think of what kind of entrance would we expect, you know, a, uh, a king to make? You know, if, if we were in charge of what happened, okay, let's say you had Scripture and you had everything, uh, you had the Gospel of Luke up to this point, and it wasn't written, and they said, well, you write the history of what happened. You know, we think, okay, there's going to be this gigantic parade and it'll be, you know, uh, you know, huge, you know, massive chariot or war horses or these things. That's probably how people expected the Messiah should be coming in. But that's different than what really happened. We've seen some things in, in history. In 1977, there was an African dictator in the Central African uh, Republic. Then, well, he, he called it the Central African Empire, and he declared himself emperor and had a coronation, Bokasa I. The price tag for that event uh, was $25 million. Back in the day, a lot of, well, for me, it's a lot of money. I don't have that sitting around. Uh, but it nearly bankrupted his country doing this. It says that uh, in, in the morning, the blare of the trumpets and the roll of the drums announced the approach of his majesty. The procession began with eight of Bacasa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by uh, another one, the royal heir, dressed in a white admiral's uniform. And he was seated on a red pillow on the throne to the left of the throne. Uh, Catherine followed the favorite of his nine wives of this, this emperor. And she had a $73,000 gown on with, with pearls. And then the emperor arrives in an imperial coach with uh, big golden eagles and uh, matched by six uh, just majestic horses and a marine band playing the sacred march of his uh, Majesty Emperor Bokasa I, so he had his own you know, march song written to him. It, uh, the account says that he went forth with a uh, cloak uh, weighing 32 pounds, this giant robe. I looked up some pictures of it. It was quite impressive. And he goes up to this uh, eagle throne, you know, that's this, this golden eagle, and he sits on it, this throne which was like uh, $2.5 million and had like a $2.5 million crown. You know, that's the type of thing we would expect. You know, Jesus instead, he comes in with donkeys. 
okay? People throwing palm branches to kind of, no red carpet here, let's, let's make it what we can. We'll throw down some palm branches. He's not even up on a high saddle on this, uh, on this donkey. Um, you know, kings don't normally ride bareback, okay? They sit in a saddle. You know, and the disciples, you know, they give their coats to, to lift him up, you know, putting him on the, on, the, on the donkey there, which that's something for us to think about too. What, would, what are we willing to do to, to lift up Jesus Christ? So we think about this, we, we think about the humility that Jesus had, and it shows us his character. This is the God we worship, and it's one of the, the, the facets of who he is that makes it easy to worship a God that is, is glorious, but also this humble and loves us this much. It also shows us this is the character we should have if we're becoming like Christ. He had a real humility. It wasn't a pretend humility. And so Christians, you know, we don't follow Jesus by getting up on our high horse and looking down on everyone. We follow him by being like him in humility. And humility, you know, part of it means being willing to give of yourself for what is needed. Jesus was humble. And I think there was a humility in the owner of these donkeys, willing to give of, of himself for what he, he found out there was need of. And Jesus, how much more so? He was willing to give us life because it's what we need. It was the only way for us to be saved. So we also we see humility. We also see Jesus coming in truth. He was completely humble. He was proclaiming that he was the Messiah King. If he would have done the things that he does here in, in the triumphal entry, and if he wasn't the Messiah, if he wasn't who he and the scriptures claim he is, then he is way out of his league pretending to be something that he had no right to pretend to. If he wasn't the Messiah King, it would have been evil for him to do this and evil for him to receive the worship that we're going to see that he receives. So let's keep going. Let's read, starting with verse 36. It says, As they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was, he was drawing near already on the way down from the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, if you look at some of the other gospel accounts, they add a few more of the details. Luke here, he, he actually doesn't mention the word, you know, Hosanna, uh, but we know they, they yelled that and they had palm branches, you know, as, as well. And I guess we see here Jesus, he's coming in humility, but he's also coming in truth. They're praising him. They're giving him glory. Well, does that counteract the, the humility that he had? Well, no, it doesn't, because he's coming in humility, and he's, he's also coming in truth. And the truth is that Christ deserves our praise. If he were to pretend otherwise, he would be, he would be lying. He deserves not only our worship, you were made to worship God, the true God. We worship all kinds of other things, because our sin has, has, 
our hearts are pointed in the wrong directions, pointed at uh, loving and worshiping other things and created things instead of the Creator and the one that ought to be the one that we worship, but you were created to worship Him. All of creation was designed for His glory and to worship Him. That's what he says, if, if these don't, the, the stones are going to cry out. God deserves glory, and he's, he's going to get it one way or another. You know, if we don't do it, God is, is going to get his glory somehow. And this is just right. Everything exists for his glory. Jesus deserves glory. It is not arrogance for him to accept this praise. This is just reality. It's just the truth. It's just reality. He knows that he ought to receive this glory. And he also knows that it is just the reality. He accepts this. God desires to be worshipped by us. And it's not because he's some kind of arrogant megalomaniac. See, any of us, if we did that, you know, if we desire worship, that's arrogance for the reason that we are not God. You, I'm not God, you are not God. If that's news to you, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry to break it to you, but I'm glad to break it to you. We are not the center of the universe. See, if you're not the center of the universe, it's wrong for you to act like you're the center of the universe. If you actually are the center of the universe, then that's totally okay. God is the center of the universe, and all praise and everything is supposed to go to him. And he also knows that's the way that we receive fulfillment. You know, we come and worship here. We, we sing these songs that you know, Adam leads us with, and uh, we sing these truths. Our, God is doing something in our hearts. We're getting joy from it as well, aren't we? When you live your life every day with him as your king and your Lord and your Savior, we get the joy. That's the system that God has set up, that he receives the glory and we receive the joy from it. So if God were to withhold you worshiping him, he's also withholding the joy that you receive from treasuring him. That's why it's the mission of our church. We want more people to to know God and to, to magnify him in our hearts. It's what he deserves, and it's the best thing for every single person that exists. You were made to worship. second part we'll look at and there's a tragic some tragic things that happen leading up to the things that happen after this that are even even more tragic we'll summarize this by saying if you miss the messiah king hey you reject the reason you exist if you were made for worship and you you turn away and you stay turned away in your rebellion from the one that that made you for himself That is the biggest tragedy there is. And then to spend eternity not finding your joy and glory in him, but instead condemnation for what we deserve. So let's read a little more. Luke 19, verse 41. It says, And when he, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he's getting near to Jerusalem here, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Okay, so think it's going on. Jesus is approaching, and he stops, and he breaks down. He is weeping, saying, would that, you, would that you, even you, have known on this day the things that make for peace. 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a, a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon an, another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The last verse is important. All this happens because they did not know the time of their visitation, that the Messiah was coming, and instead of recognizing him and really receiving him, that wasn't going to be what was happening. Yeah, right now, there's disciples and some that are, there's excitement, Hosanna, and, but is it the real thing? I encourage you, keep reading in the, in the Gospel of Luke. I know we'll come back to it eventually, but it'd be a great thing for you to just keep on reading this week. Personally, maybe as a family, the crowd turns against him. We've seen the Pharisees, they're, they're already against him. We know from other gospel accounts, some other things that Luke doesn't record have happened. Uh, Jesus was uh, anointed by, um, by Mary. That's uh, one of the things, he raises Lazarus from the tomb, and that really gets the Pharisees upset. And they're, they're actively looking for ways to turn the crowds against him and to uh, have him put to death. So yeah, Jesus is knowing that this big celebration, this triumph, this isn't going to last. He didn't come to Jerusalem now to sit on a throne. He came to hang on a cross. That was his mission going in. And here it's breaking his heart because he realizes that, that most of the people of Jerusalem here, they're going to reject him. They're going to turn against him. And his, his tear is not for himself. I'm going and I am going to be rejected. I am going to be killed. I am going to be nailed to a cross. Usually that's what we're like. You know, we're, we're self-focused. Oh, I have all these bad things that happen to me. People are rejecting me. I have to go through these things. Jesus was, he was focused on them. I mean, he knew what was happening and it was hard. But the, his tears were for them, knowing that because of their sin, they're going to reject him and they're going to experience consequences. They're missing their opportunity for salvation. That if they would just accept him, if they would just turn, if they would just embrace the one that was coming for them, they could have salvation. It's the king, the one that, that they were made for. But he knows they're going to blow it and there are going to be consequences. He knows that part of the consequences, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. And about 40 years later, 70 AD, that literally happens. The Roman emperor Titus comes and Jerusalem, except for a little bit of it, is leveled. And the temple is, is leveled, demolished. And uh, there's slaughter and bloodshed. It's, just, it's an awful, awful, horrific war crime thing. Um, Josephus writes, recording this, he says, Caesar had already commanded the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the towers, which projected higher than the others to stand, and he names them, and that part of the wall which enclosed the city on the west. So a little bit of the wall still there. This was to be an encampment for the troops, which would be left behind, and the towers were to reveal to posterity, to future generations, how great a city Jerusalem had been, and what sort of fortifications Roman... Uh, prowess had dominated. All the rest of the wall which encompassed the city, uh, the demolition teams leveled so that no one who would come there in the future would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. 
That's from Josephus, a first century historian. But you know, that's not the worst of it. I mean, the worst of it is the rejection of Jesus. It's not just that your city gets torn down or people killed. He knows they're going to be lost forever. Except for those that eventually will repent and come to him. That people are going to enter eternity with, with no Savior. With no one to stand before them interceding on their behalf. No one to, to go before God and say, their sins have been taken care of because I died for them and, and they're forgiven. But instead, being accountable, them being accountable for their own sins, which means condemnation forever. And you and I, everyone in here, we're either in one of those places. Right now, you either have Jesus Christ interceding for you at the right hand of God, saying, I have paid for their sin. It's been taken care of. They are forgiven. Yeah, they're still sinning. We're not done with them yet, but you know, they're, they're good. Or you have nothing between you and a holy judge that is set against sin. While you still have time, know this Savior. Don't let the time of your, your visitation, you're hearing, you're being encountered by God through his word, through the preaching of, of God's word, which is his voice. And you're responsible to respond to that. May the Holy Spirit move in your heart and, and cause you to respond. Turn to him. This is your responsibility to do this. And you can be saved. So the tears of the Messiah show his sorrow for those who miss their opportunity for salvation. We see that in his tears. I think there's another application for us as well. Jesus was not indifferent for their fate. Are we indifferent to the fate of those around us that don't know Jesus Christ? Are we indifferent to the fate of the lost people around us? And sometimes we just get callous. We get, we get hard to that. And sometimes, yeah, it's, it's hard just having your heart broken and broken and broken. Okay, but don't ever get, let your heart get calloused to this. Have you a heart that, that, that does weep at times for the lost in our community, in our families, the lost around the world? And maybe that moves in our hearts to, to, to go into the mission field or to do more to, to support those that are going, taking the message throughout the world. Jesus was not cool and he was not indifferent about it. One commentator, William Hendrickson, says, The lost in hell can never regain the opportunity of which they did not take advantage. There's opportunity now, but that comes to an end at the end of this life. And then the last section here, a little bit more, verse 45 and 46 Here, it's what's sometimes called the cleansing of the temple. And Jesus' account here is shorter than it is in other places. Um, also, in the Gospel of John, it has this happened way at the beginning, and I think it probably means that this happened more than once. I think you wouldn't, there's some things that sometimes they arrange for different reasons, but I think that would be too much. I think this is, Jesus has done this more than once. Anyways, it says, verse 45, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So in this, what happens, uh, we see Jesus' opposition to sin. We see um, that he, he was upset with this. Okay, so it says that he drove out the sellers. 
And we know from the other Gospels a little bit more of what was going on. There was uh, people selling animals. There were money changers. Because people had to come to the temple and to give their sacrifices and make donations. And sometimes it was you know, hard to travel with your, your animal or you didn't have one. So you would come and you would, uh, you, you would purchase one to be sacrificed on your behalf because they still had the sacrificial system going at that time. So some of these people thought, well, we're providing a service selling these animals. And there were people that were money changers. And they said, well, we're providing a service too because you've got to pay in Hebrew money. And if you're coming from far away and you've got your Greek money or Roman money or whatever it is, we'll swap it out. So if it was just that, well, it would be one thing. But these people had made this into a, you know, this was, this was shopping mall on Black Friday here or something. You know, this was not a place where you go to worship anymore. You had people, you know, promoting and selling and people making the big bucks. You know, using religion and some excuses for this uh, in order... Um, it was, on one hand it was a service, but really they were in it for the money. And true religion, it, it's not to be used for selfish gain. We see that in the world today too. There are, you know, some pastors with their, uh, you know, $70,000, you know, dollar, you know, uh, designer shoes and all these things and, you know, if, if, uh, huge expensive cars and all of this and, uh, Christian industries that make, you know, lots and lots of money. Jesus is saying, hey, this temple, this is for praying. Not for, this, it, our, the temple here is for, for praying to God, not praying on customers. And that's what you're doing instead here. They can't be worshiping in a, praying in a shopping mall. And I think there's, you know, examples. There's ministries who use the church to try to make, you know, big bucks. Um, Sometimes Christian business people who go to church, some places mainly for the, you know, they want to build connections, you know, marketing, networking, sales leads. There's a complete lack of respect for the real purpose of the temple. Application for us, hey, church, don't forget your mission. Don't forget what it's really all about. We see here, too, the anger of Jesus towards us. It shows his, his opposition to sin. Um, Jesus is humble. Okay, we saw that. Don't confuse Jesus' humility with indifference to sin. Some people think, well, Jesus is humble and he's loving, and that means he doesn't care about sin. Jesus really cares about sin. You read the other gospel accounts of what's happening here? Jesus is flipping over tables. He is making a scene. He makes a, he makes a whip, and he's whipping people and driving them out. Okay, this is upset Jesus being upset with sin. So the same God that is humble and merciful is also the same God that is very upset with our sin because he is a holy God. He is a a pure God. And these two things go together. He is humble, he is loving, and he is holy and he is upset with our sin. That's what Jesus went to the cross doing the most humble thing anyone has ever done, Philippians 2 talks about this, coming down in the form of a servant and going to the most wretched death there is, even death on a cross. But he also did that because he is a holy God. And he, can, he has to judge sin. He has to deal with it. He can't just excuse it. He is not indifferent to sin. 
So we see, on one hand, Jesus is not indifferent to the lost. We see that in his tears. Jesus is also not indifferent to sin. We see that in his righteous anger towards sin. And you need to have a Jesus in your mind that is the Jesus of reality and the Jesus of Scripture that is not indifferent to the lost and is not indifferent to sin. Something else you can think of. You know, when, when you are saved, this is true in the, after Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit comes in and starts entering believers so that it talks about us being the temple of God. And we'll talk about this more in the Union of Christ series, both, individ, both as a group and individually. And Jesus is still at work purifying his temple. You know, he's going to move in, he's going to start kicking out sin out of your life. So if you want Jesus as your Savior, if you want to accept him, realize he loves you, and he's also going to start kicking sin out of your life. And uh, sometimes he, may, he might be turning over a few tables in your heart, but it's good, and he loves you. And at the very end here, we see two more verses to read. It says, And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, And the principal men of the people, the leaders, were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is Palm Sunday. This this is the beginning, literally, of the most important week in all human history. You pick one week that's the most important. It's between Palm Sunday and what will happen on Friday of that week. Our Lord and Savior rejected, betrayed, nailed to a cross for our sin. It's what he came to do. And then at the end of that week on Sunday, risen. Let's pray. Lord God, oh God, we come before you and we just thank you for what we see in Jesus Christ. And Lord, Father, we know that when we see Jesus, we see you as well. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because you share the same character. By, by seeing the, the Father, we see the Son. We see what our God is like. And we thank you that we worship a God of such love and compassion and humility, such willingness to, to, to put us and, and to serve us, Lord God, and such a God of holiness. We thank you that you are not okay with sin. We would not want a God that is unjust or that lets sin slide. You are holy and you are good. And we thank you that through the cross, we can know both your love and your holiness and your goodness. Lord, help us to see you for who you are, to recognize our Messiah King, and to know you in your visitation. In our Messiah's name we pray. Amen.